Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 85. Uh, we're going to focus here on sugar chest and sugar boxes. Um, something that quite infrequently come up at auction, and I think a lot of these are more on a southern bent. So you may find them like in Brunk Auction today, and um, very rarely up here in, in the Northeast. So from Virginia around the circuit of the southern states to Texas, every southern planter in the days when there were planters was proud to boast that he raised everything he ate except sugar and coffee. This was healthful propaganda for men whose responsibilities included the physical well-being of several score dependents. Moreover, it was surprisingly true. Quite aside from the riches of forest and stream, which were equally free to master and to man, landowner and backwoodsman, the plantations produced beef, pork, mutton, chickens, ducks, turkeys, guineas, and their eggs, wheat, corn, oats, rye, rice, vegetables and fruits, honey, syrup, molasses, and even dairy products. So in actual fact, there was nothing lacking except sugar that the farmer couldn't produce in America, coffee, and even spices. The astonishing variety of foodstuffs grown and consumes appears to have been considered noteworthy even in the 18th century. So as a visitor in Virginia of that period, started his own host table, was supplied with every vegetable then known even in Europe, even alcoholic beverages, brandy, whiskey, wine, beer, cider, were largely produced at home, though Madeira and other fine wines were imported for those able to indulge their, uh, their, their taste for fine beverage. Since sugar and coffee were the two articles of daily use that were difficult and costly to acquire, they were valued accordingly and were kept under lock and key. A lesson early learned by the planta plantation mistress was that however trustworthy her servants may be in weightier concerns and their fidelity was frequently amazing, they could not safely be turned loose in an unguarded storeroom. Wherefore, the lady of the manor must make her daily rounds armed with a formidable array of keys carried customarily in a key basket and must personally give out supplies restricted to immediate use. Coffee bought green in the whole bean was freshly roasted and ground every day. The roasters were small affairs made of iron and revolved with a crank, somewhat after the manner of the peanut roasters used by pushcart men today. Roasting was done slowly and carefully on the hearth of a huge kitchen fireplace. The little hand mills employed for the subsequent grinding were similar in size to those dedicated even to spices, which were likewise purchased whole and then were pulverized as needed. One such mill, constructed of brass and iron, shows the importance of metal as it played into this industry.
Important though coffee, as important as coffee was in the normal family menu, sugar was even more precious because of its multifold applications in the kitchen and the quantities that it was consumed in the colonies. The climate and soil of the United States proved, as a whole, unsuited for sugar production. A little cane was grown in scattered areas of the Lower South, as, for example, on Butler's Island in coastal Georgia, a spot made infamous, or more correctly, famous by Fanny Kremble, Butler, in her journal of a residence on a Georgian plantation. Much more cane was grown and refined in Louisiana, but by far the greater part of the sugar consumed in the colonies and later in the States was imported, and its price remained high until well past the year 1860. In 1786, brown sugar was selling at the Galfian trading post near Augusta, Georgia, for a shilling and a pound. In 1819, the price was four pounds for a dollar. In 1823, 15 cents a pound, and in 1831, five pounds for a dollar. The Georgia Gazette gives quotations in the Augusta market for the year 1830. The lump sugar must have been a high grade of brown, sufficiently refined to form hard lumps, because it was cheaper than the loaf sugar and became the first machine for cutting loaf sugar into symmetrical cubes was patented in America in 1861. Machine cutting had been in use in England for some 20 years prior to this. For a good many years after the settlement of America, molasses was used more freely than sugar, and within the memory of persons now living, brown sugar meant all ordinary requirements, loaf sugar being reserved for company occasions. This was not from choice, but from necessity. In Charleston, the center of lavish living and exquisite cookery, this very old recipe for blackberry pudding has been preserved. Two cups of blackberries, one and a half cups of flour, one half spoonful of soda, one quarter tablespoon of salt, and one cup of molasses. Personal experiment has proved that the flavor of molasses is far more penetrating than that of blackberries. Hence it appears certain that the recipe was followed only when sugar was not available. The tediousness of the long hauls from market to plantation made the purchasing of sugar in country homes an annual or at most a semi-annual event, and the high cost of a commodity constantly threatened by the notoriously sweet tooth of the Negro necessitated the construction of those safe harbors known as sugar chests. So there Lore has it that because of the Negroes were so hungry for sugar, these um, very specific piece of furniture had created just for as, as a lockbox or as a safe, a sugar safe. So such chests appear to have been typically and probably exclusively a southern invention. The majority of surviving examples have been found in the inland states of Tennessee and Kentucky, whose remoteness from seaports and scarcity of highways made sugar an exceptionally valued luxury. In the main, the chests were simple in style 
and built as easily obtained by easily obtained local woods. Usually they were the handiwork of the plantation carpenter or joiner, um, of whom one or more was attached to each estate. The most common chest consisted of a rectangular box supported upon turn legs. The space within divided into bins by a partition. Lock and key protected the <coughs> sacrosanct contents against secret raids. Sometimes small spice drawers were built in into and above the box. And tradition holds that coffee was occasionally stored with the sugar. But such a juxtaposition would surely have been ruinous at one point. Had the stored coffee been previously roasted? For sugar readily absorbs the odors and flavors of the other foods. Green coffee beans were must, much less obtrusive. At time, times one encounters chest of considerably different design in the general form of a desk, though from their uh, uns obviously unrestored or unaltered condition, quite certainly built for the accommodation of just sugar. The small drawers at the top seemed to have spices in those that had them. The use of the larger drawer below is conjectural, though it may have been designed for table linens. Chests with bracket feet also occur occasionally, but they are very early, and comparatively few have escaped without destruction. Yet another early type is the tall or the old-time style secretary. The quality of workmanship varies with the individual piece. Some chests show excellent dovetail construction. Some are quite elaborately inlaid with holly, while others are but crudely made boxes set upon unlovingly or legs not related to them. Primarily, these chests were intended to hold loaf sugar, the most expensive of all forms, which was reserved for table use and the finest cookery. So, quickly does one generation lose sight and knowledge of the customs of the preceding, it that it's that the precise meaning of the term loaf sugar may call for explanation. To Professor Alrich Bonnell Phillips of Yale, a native Georgian, whose book Life and Labor in the Old South has met with <clears throat> international recognition. So we all should be indebted for the following lucid statements. The crystallized or crystals of brown sugar are themselves nearly white, but each crystal is coated with gummy molasses. The refining removes the coating in old times before the centrifugal machine was introduced. This was done by potting. A conical pot with a perforation at the apex, which is the bottom, was filled nearly full of brown sugar, and a syrup of white sugar poured upon it to fill the pot. As this trickled through the mass and finally into the container below, a coating of clear syrup on each crystal formed. The syrup, containing no gum to hold moisture, dried completely, cementing the crystals together in a solid conical loaf which had to be broken or merely cut or sawed for use. Brown sugar did not need to be cut, for it was nearly always moist and loose enough to be scooped and spooned. Alice Morris Earl, in her book Home Life in the Colonial Days, says, Housewives of dignity and elegance 
desired to have some supply of sugar. This sugar was always low sugar, and truly low sugar, for it was purchased ever in great loaves and cones, which averaged and weighed about nine to ten pounds apiece. This pure, clear sugar cone always came wrapped in a deep blue-purple paper of such unusual and beautiful tint, and so color-laden, that the country homes it was carefully saved and soaked to supply a dye for a small amount of the finest wool. The cutting of the cone of sugar into lumps of equal size and regular shape was distinctively the work of the mistress and daughters of the house. It was too exact and too dainty a piece of work to be entrusted to clumsier, wasteful servants or even large men. Various simply shaped sugar shears or sugar cutters were used and developed and designed for this purpose. While Mrs. Earle refers to the New England etiquette of sugar, her statements are exactly paralleled with a, <coughs> with a reminiscence of a very old lady who I, I knew as a child, and whose days were passed on a Georgian plantation. So I particularly recall her mention of the beautiful blue paper and from Rebecca Lantier, Felton's Country Life in Georgia, I extract the following reference to the 1840s. There was always a sideboard where gin, rum, and peach brandy held distinctions. Loaf sugar, brought from Charleston or even Augusta by wagons, was uniformly present. I can remember with accurate recollection whose beautiful snowy cones of white sugar encased in thick blue-green papers that were always in request when company came, and the sideboard drinks were set forth in generous arrays. Cookbooks are surprisingly fertile in choice bits of information pertaining to the domestic life of any age, especially the older books written in chatty vein. I found one such volume, written in 1859, in Fort Valley, Georgia, and called the Southern Gardener and Recipe Book. It offers help to housewives on subjects ranging from company cookery through gardening to veterinary science. Evidently, the mistress of the Southern household was, like Shakespeare's heroes, required to play many parts, among them those of housekeeper, cook, seamstress, kitchen and flower, flower gardener, keeper of the stores, wife, mother, and always a great hostess to represent her husband and the family. She had helpers, to be sure, but it was her arduous task to train them all. And her pantry. In those days of slow and difficult transportation, she was expected to have consistently at hand a complexity of foodstuffs and seasonings, which now would hardly come within the comprehension of anyone other than a master chef himself. So here's a recipe taken at random. It is uh, for, the <coughs> for the trife. Trife indeed. Mix in a large bowl, a quarter of a pound of <coughs> sifted sugar, a bit of lemon peel grated fine, and the juice of a whole lemon. Half a gill of Lisbon or sweet wine, the same of brandy, and a pint of a half of good cream. Whisk the whole thing well together, and take off the froth as it rises with a skimmer, and put it into a sieve. Continue to whisk it until you have enough of the whip, and set in a cold place to drain three or four hours. Then put in a dish of eight sponge biscuits 
two ounces of almonds, grated nutmeg, lemon, currant jelly, raspberry jam, wine, brandy, to taste. Pour over them with a pint of custard and plenty of whip. Throughout the book, there may be found references to sifted, grated, and pounded sugar, as well to good old brown sugar. It is almost certain that the more attractive of the sugar chests stood within the dining room itself, near to the sideboard, with sugar and spices ready for the mixing of toddies or similar sustaining beverages. From the fact that in some examples, the partition is so placed as to provide one wide and one deep, narrow, <coughs> narrow families, unable to afford the expensive cost in their planer chest of brown sugar and place them in a convenient pot in the house. So the families with smaller houses um, and smaller bank accounts didn't end up putting them in the dining room. They were put in very obscure places on the, uh, on the residences. So to this consideration of the sugar chest, let me add that there was yet another form of container not this far mentioned, but doubtless familiar in every section of frontier America. This was the humble gourd, grown alike by Indians and settlers, and among its diversity of forms and employment frequently served as a kitchen sugar bowl. So, uh, it does not allow, however, that they exemplify all the forms in which sugar chests were constructed. Owners of various pieces are urged to assist um, in putting together what uh, Williamsburg is trying to do, a symposium now on sugar chest, you know, from uh, the southern states. So um, anyone with any information, um, please call Colonial Williamsburg. So that's what's happening now with the sugar chest. So, But as we just said, we have people that are very poor that have them and people that are very rich that have them, all for different purposes. So... Uh, didn't talk a lot about the woods. The woods were probably made out of pine, uh, poplar, um, any any wood that would have been easy to uh, to cut with a saw to be a sawyer. Yeah, and and a lot of these would just have a dark brown stain put on them, and some were actually painted with casein or milk paint. So, so Greg Perry, the historic preservationist, signing off. Thanks everyone for listening. <laughs>